0: Good afternoon and good evening. Welcome back everyone to the Developmentor podcast, your source for interviews and content on careers in technology. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. For those new to the show, we have three goals. We want to showcase interesting people in tech across a variety of roles. We want to highlight the different paths people have taken in their careers. And most importantly, we want to help you find your path. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com. On today's episode, I'm pleased to have Josh Wills join me. Josh is a mathematician and operations research expert by schooling who has then spent a number of years as a software engineer with a particular focus on things like statistical engineering, data science, and data engineering. He has in many ways been at the forefront of the data science movement and held a number of roles in the field working to translate, at the end of the day, math into code. Along his journey, he's worked at a range of companies, including startups and big tech, Google, Slack, IBM, Indeed.com, and a few others. Please welcome to the show, Josh Wills. Josh, great to have you here.
1: Grant, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here.
0: I'm glad to catch up again. I think it's been a few years since we were last on stage together at Activate, so I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join me.
1: My pleasure, man. My pleasure.
0: Yeah, and so why don't we kick things off? You know, I gave a little bit of a touch of an intro there, but I would love if you could kind of fill in the blanks on some of the highlights in your career and how you thought about some of the process along the way as, as you developed your career. So I've been at this for uh, for
1: almost 20 years now, I guess professionally, maybe informally. I don't know, maybe 25 years, I think, roughly speaking. Lead off by saying, of course, I am currently unemployed. I was at Slack until uh, the end of October. I spent a good proper four years there. Uh, now I'm just taking some time off to kind of enjoy myself and work on random things that I think are interesting and that kind of stuff. But you know, Grant, you and I hooked up because I spent my last couple of years at of Slack working on uh, search and getting kind of getting deep into the weeds of search and search infrastructure. Um, in particular, Lucene and Solar for the first time ever, which was great. Rebuilding Slack search was a lot of fun. Before that, I did a, I had a sort of unfortunate stint in management. I was Slack's first director of data engineering and built out. That kind of reflects early data infrastructure, and early data engineering practice. Before that, I was at Cloudera for four years where I was director of data science. I worked on open source projects. I gave a lot of advice to people about big data, data science, like kind of back in like 2011 or so when the stuff was just kind of becoming a thing. Did that for four years, really enjoyed that. Did four years before that at Google. I worked on Google's ad system, worked on a lot of Google's data infrastructure. I wrote one of Google's A B testing libraries, like the experimentation framework, uh, the Java version of that. Was an Indeed, briefly, back back when I lived in Austin, I worked at IBM. At the same time I was doing Indeed and, and IBM, I was doing my master's in operations research at the University of Texas. Before Austin and before IBM, I went to Duke and I studied, I studied math there. I studied very, really kind of very pure, weird, abstract algebra, algebraic geometry, kind of like not useful math, just sort of like pretty math, that, that kind of thing. I didn't really start programming until I was in high school and I did it like on my TI eighty five calculator as a way to just sort of pass the time during like boring math and chemistry and physics classes like mostly now when I started programming.
0: I'm so jealous of the T I eighty five. I was so proud to get the T I thirty six solar back when I was in high school. So
1: that was my middle school calculator.
0: That's the difference between your level of math and mine. I worked pretty hard
1: for that T I eighty five. I saved up my penny for it. I really wanted it. Yeah. I don't I don't know why I thought having a really powerful calculator was like a status symbol. But I was, I was obviously a pretty big nerd
0: in high school. <laughs> I can relate as well. I mean, I think like you, I got a degree in math and then promptly went into computers and software as well. You kind of hinted at, tease up nicely, my first question. You know, I'd love to hear more about that early days. You know, like we've had a number of folks on who were physicists turned software engineers. Mm-hmm. I think you're the first mathematician turned software engineer. Other than like you said, you were obscure math and yeah, I need to go get a job. How did that kind of come together for you?
1: I was very fortunate, like I said, doing weird math stuff. I was I had a little passing fancy interest in neuroscience uh, back in college, and I applied for one summer and won an NSF REU research experience for undergraduates uh, at Carnegie Mellon, actually doing kind of neuroscience research, like mathematical modeling of basically the patterns and sort of the structure of the rodent hippocampus that's used for spatial navigation and stuff. And so I won this thing kind of based on like math stuff. So when I get to Carnegie Mellon. And they basically like plot me down in front of a Sun workstation and say, okay, you know, here are the files in MATLAB that define this model. Just go kind of, you know, get it up and running and just go play with it. And they just kind of like left me there. And I had like literally no idea what to do. <laughs> I'd never been, get, like I'd never been out a unix keyboard before. I literally just sat there in like a panic for like two hours, too afraid to say anything to anyone <laughs> for fear I would just be like asked to leave immediately. And then i just like basically like monkey at the keyboard i just typed in like netscape and hit enter at some point and like a browser opened i was like oh thank god did an to search because that was what one did at the time for unix commands and i kind of like learned enough unix to kind of get by picked this stuff up as i went along and uh really started like programming in matlab in a pretty big way just really kind of enjoying it just really like finding it fun and i took i took one computer science class at the it was really good. It was, it was called Computer Science 108, Software Design and Implementation. Purely project based. A lot of fun. Like really, really good class. I just had to, I had a blast doing it. it was awesome. But that wasn't that you know, wasn't really even until my senior year. So I really like went all through college before I did any honestly before I did any CS or any statistics at all. I was like kind of like basically out the door already by that time. I don't know why anyone hired me. I don't know what IBM was thinking.
0: That's really interesting. Actually, just speaking of tickling some neurons there, I think. What year did you actually do the REU? Because I did an NSF REU program between my junior and senior year, although it wasn't on neuroscience. And it was kind of a similar experience, plopped down at a, a workstation and said, Here you go. So sort of been ninety nine and two thousand.
1: Computer science students and they were all gone. They were all doing web startups. I was they had to sort of go dig through the dregs of the math majors to get them
0: to come too <laughs> yeah all right well so mine was 95 and I was at Syracuse University but yeah so that's funny I went to go for math and I was doing all the esoteric math as you said as well and then a friend of mine said hey you should check out computer science and yeah here we are well and so I'm kind of curious too you know Josh like you mentioned that you then went on to get your master's and you were working What's another actual parallel to mine too I did my master's well working, which I think is such a great model for anybody who wants to get a master. But stepping back from that, you know, I I get the question sometimes from junior engineers or folks who are asking me for advice. Hey, should I bother with a masters? And you did take that route, right? And what was your motivation there? I mean, and how has that played out for you? So it
1: worked out super well for me. I don't think of it as generally a good thing to do. I guess I maybe want to say like where I got lucky, I think. I mean, I think if you're a new so at least back in the day, in the dark ages, like 2001, right? And I think you would relate to this. As a newly graduated student with a Bachelor of Science degree in anything, you're not generally getting to do like super interesting, super cool stuff. If you wanted to do anything interesting, you really needed a PhD. And then if you wanted to do anything slightly interesting, you needed a Master's degree. That was at least, that was the vibe at the time. That was the way it seemed to IBM, to be sure. I don't feel like that's necessarily true anymore. I think Google and Facebook let the, let the new kids do all kinds of crazy stuff So I don't think it's necessarily the case. It's certainly the case a lot of places. It's not necessarily the case. The thing that I was really fortunate about, and I would say, you know, from a quality of life perspective, I was doing a full course load while I had a full-time job. And I was doing stuff at IBM that required me to be working like 60, 70 hours a week. So I had like some rough, rough semesters doing that. That was a really bad, low quality of life time of my life doing that stuff. One of my professors had a company. He was working at a company called Zillions, which actually still exists and does uh, price optimization stuff like pricing software and very operations research like heavy duty like statistical forecasting and optimization and stuff like that for pricing models and he took a shine to me because i was a pretty good student and he hired me to come work on his team at his company and that was kind of like my sort of next level you know gateway into startups and doing more software stuff and like getting to learn how to build really like systems from scratch, and do just kind of like much more hardcore stuff than I had gotten to do at IBM. But I think of it as like from that perspective, I was very fortunate, if I was recommending this advice to people, I would say look for programs where there are people who are teaching, who are in the area that you wanna be in and ideally have a company and like take their classes and do well and stuff like that. I mean, that was the most useful Part of my master's program
0: was taking that one class, honestly. yeah. Now that makes sense. And, you know, and I mean, these days with even after undergrad education, many of the universities are moving to such an all la carte model that you can just go take like the one class. You certainly could back then, but it was physically harder. You had to at least live in a city that had a, program that you wanted to take that makes sense well and it's interesting too because i think you know probably back then operations research is at least one of the places that statisticians went to yeah so really the
1: good stats program in texas is actually a m in bryant texas which is kind of near houston university of Texas does not have at least did not have a statistics program when i was there or was as close as i could get and so that's what i did i love statistics i really did statistics was like again last semester at duke just going through my basic graduation requirements i'm thinking like intro to logic music appreciation and like intro to statistics basically like super like blow off semester more or less um and i loved it changed my life like absolutely loved it
0: that's funny because i think uh, for me in the math department the person who taught stats at the time his nickname was dr death because it was so boring you know and like i think stats these days is so much more compelling i think you know it's funny like the stats and linear algebra were the two math classes i did worst in and they are the underpinnings of absolutely almost everything we do these days.
1: <laughs> so, I, every time I read, I read a machine learning book, I'm kind of like, I just got—I mean, I was so bored in linear algebra. And now I live and die with this stuff. Uh, you, you gotta be kidding me. The irony—that
0: actually leads nicely to the next question. You know, I mean, I think many folks are often a bit scared of the math, or unsure of how much math they might need to do. You know, you've been in this data science, machine learning, stats space for a while here. You know, for people who are kind of wanting to get started, like, how much math is there these days involved?
1: I maybe have like an unpopular answer, I guess. Statistics in school, at least when I was there, was very much focused on the problem of how do we extract as much information as we can from a relatively small subset of data. And statistics at Google and Facebook was much more concerned with we are drowning in data. We have an overwhelming amount of data how do we not delude ourselves how do we not get confused by all this data into seeing things that are not really there just because at our scale any kind of spurious correlation is going to look statistically significant if we are using these kind of classic techniques and you know again i was a math guy like you the sort of very low level kind of plumbing of statistics was the part that I was most interested in. I was not like the, well, let's just turn a crank on a chi-square test kind of guy, basically, right? I want, like, I want to understand, what are the assumptions here? Why does this work? I had a very strong command, I would say, of like the fundamentals, but I, I wasn't like fancy or anything like that. And that was kind of appealing to them because the problems they were solving were sort of like the opposite of what an academic statistician would normally come across. Because they just didn't have access to the data sets and stuff. I would say it's for like computer science as well. It's like, or really kind of like anyone who's interested in wisdom is like, you don't really need that much stuff. You don't really need to be in the weeds of the super esoteric stuff. My joke has always been that like any intro computer science interview can be solved with a hash map. If you know what a hash map is, or a dictionary, whatever you want to call it, you're fine. They'll hire you. Like, that's it. If you want to be a senior person, like, learn what a priority queue is and learn how to use it. Like, that's kind of it.
0: I would say that if you want to be a senior person, learn how to Google what hash map is. Learn how to spell stack overflow, right? <laughs>
1: I mean, completely. It's kids these days; they have no idea how good they are.
0: You know, of course, I bring you on the show for unpopular opinions, so I appreciate that, and I'm glad you call it out. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about a little bit on the data science side. Going a little tangent though, is like in many ways, the next generation of developers—it's all like stats and AI native. They're just always going to have this function that says, "Here's a score for this thing that you want to do." Like that says how much you care about it, or how much you should care about it. Essentially, here's a function that says assign a probability to this input that you were just given and then do something with it. That's a pretty compelling leap up in terms of application development. It'll be a very different
1: world for folks going forward. I think Andre Karpov wrote this great blog post a couple of years ago about, I think he called it like programming 2.0 or something like that. It's hard to write a really compelling good blog post with a good title at the same time, but he was really writing about like sort of a data centric perspective on programming to describe kind of like the future of machine learning models we would make changes and do pull requests against data sets even more so than we would do against like code itself in some way because the actual generation of the model and the tuning the parameters all that sort of stuff will just be sort of taken care of for you it'll be like a compiler thing like great for folks the five people who need to understand it but like no one else really needs to worry about it they can just use it.
0: Well, and that's an interesting thing for our listeners, right? Because as you're hearing what Josh is saying here is like, there's two sides of this coin. And depending on how deep down the math rabbit hole you want to go, you could choose one side or the other, right? Like you can be involved in the really low level, like theory and implementation, or you could choose to be a consumer of it.
1: I personally recommend being a consumer. I have no idea how computers work. I don't know how operating systems work. I don't care. They work. I don't I to don't
0: have- yeah but it's a good thing somebody does so.
1: very true but as long as I can launch Netscape, I guess I'll, I'll be okay.
0: you know and Josh, looking at your profile and I think you hinted at this in your intro, you had climbed up into this management role you know so kind of shifting back to the career narrative and then you decided to I don't even know what the right wording here is, but for lack of a better phrase like quote unquote go back into engineering. I hesitate to use even the word go back because it makes it sound like it's a bit of a regression. I'd love to hear what that insight is that, you know, you're you're at this point, you're climbing the ladder as, as folks are often want to do. And then you say, no, no, I like back where I was, you know, walk me through that time in your life.
1: Sure, sure, sure. I was a like tech lead at Google. When I went to Cloudera, they made me director of data science. And honestly, just because of the role I was in, I was effectively like a developer advocate and I got a director title because it lets you get meetings with other directors at other companies and stuff like that, not because you're actually directing much of anything. i of trying to think of the client-facing title, like that sort of thing. Anyway, I parlayed that, you know, ill-gotten game into a real management job at Slack uh, as director of data engineering. But even then, I was director of data engineering at Slack when, like, I was managing one person. I'm not really a director. I'm pretty hands-on working with my one other engineer to build out all this infrastructure. It was kind of like I didn't go back to engineering, I never stopped engineering. I was always engineering. I was doing this management stuff kind of like on the side because I mean, there were parts of management I very much enjoyed. I very much enjoy recruiting and hiring. I very much enjoy like doing one-on-ones, mentoring people. Very much enjoy that. It's great stuff. I do not personally super care or can really tolerate that well sitting through like a sprint review or doing a budget planning meeting or God help me sitting through a promotion process. Like I just can't do it. Slack was very kind to me. I think uh, Keith Adams, who's Slack's chief architect, said something effective. Josh is far too good of an engineer to be wasted in management. I really just had fundamentally no interest in the job that is required. It really is required to be a solid, useful, good middle manager in a growing technology company. I just like computers too much grant. I always have. I think I remember I was sitting down with one of the other engineering directors and he like commenting on like how much courage it must have taken to like abandon my engineering director job. It didn't really take any courage at all. And it didn't take any courage for like the same reason I'm not very good at being an engineering director, which is I don't really care what other people think. If you don't care what other people think, you're not going to be like a completely good engineering director or any kind of Management type at all, I would say, probably thinking. But it did make it very simple for me to leave when I decided that I didn't like this, and there were clearly a lot of people in the world who did like doing this stuff, right, and were much better at it than I was.
0: That's a pretty deep insight, you know, when you think about it, because I think many of us, especially in tech. Episode four, we had Camille Fournier on, and she talks a lot about mm-hmm. you know growth into management and up through into the C level, and her really good book, The Manager's Path. Very next episode, Drew Ferris, who I think maybe you know, who talks about remaining technical and avoiding management you know kind of two contrasting it's really interesting to hear your perspective of somebody who dipped his toes in the water if you will and then realized it's not for me not for me yeah
1: Camille's book by the way I, I read actually like after i left
0: management if that
1: book had been written like two years before uh, it would have saved me a lot of time and, and i think i think everyone a lot of hassle i would have just read that and like, oh oh i clearly do not want to do this okay great now I <laughs> go. i'll just go hack but I would say Camille's book actually covers, I think, the life of the senior IC really, really well. He does a great job of describing just how awesome it is. Like I said, I, I, if I had read it two years earlier, I would have just never bothered. I'd been like, oh, that's actually what I want to do.
0: same thing. There's probably not a week that goes by that I don't tell somebody to go read that book.
1: Completely agree. Could not be more strongly enough. It's such a good book.
0: Yeah. Especially because most management books, you know, let's face it, like they have a couple of nuggets. Maybe they have an acronym that's cool, and maybe they you know have a, a cool story about you know some name drop that they worked with. But like Camille's book's real, and it would have saved me a bunch of time too. So you mentioned Keith there, like you're setting me up here really well, Josh. I'm just gonna say that because my next question is the name of the show is Developmentor, and you know as the name says, mentor. I'd really love it for you to reflect on some moments in your career where you've had mentoring that have really helped you kind of figure out what's next for you, and then if if you have any advice for people on how to get mentoring and how to be a good mentee, I think that would be really useful. I think a
1: handful of people, only one of whom is famous. And even she is not as famous, I think, as she deserves to be. Very early in my career, when I joined uh, a like, company my professor worked at from Texas, I worked with an engineer uh, who's still a friend of mine. His name is John Adair. We kind of worked on a new pricing engine together, basically. And we ended up kind of building it from scratch. It was like basically me and my team of analysts, sort of proto data science people, this is like back in like 2003, roughly. wrote up a spec, kind of like describe what we wanted to have happen, how we wanted this thing to work. Brought the spec to him and he essentially like implemented it and I unit tested it, would be the way to say it. And it was really, it was the first time in my life I'd ever seen like a really good engineer, he was a good 10, 15 years older than I was, more experienced than I was, build something from like nothing like building a new product from nothing. And I got to kind of like watch it the whole way and really understand how it works. And it really was like just one of by far the best learning development experiences of my life, probably speaking, it sounds tedious and awful because you know what, I was like writing unit tests every day for like six months, best educational experience of my life without question. I learned so much stuff, like that was incredibly valuable. So, I guess first, you know, bit of advice if you want, like, want to be a mentee, is there's no work that you're too good to do. Like, what I think of as like the best learning opportunities of my life came from situations where I was more than willing to roll over my sleeves and do things that are not sexy and are not cool. And I got to do a lot of fun, sexy stuff too, but I tell you, doing the fun, sexy stuff doesn't teach you nearly as much as doing the really dirty, thankless stuff. Second one I can think of was when I got to Google, there was an engineer there uh, named Ashish Agarwal who worked on an earlier version of the like, the experiment framework there and a bunch, of, um, a bunch of machine learning systems and stuff like that. And I was coming from the perspective where I was very much analysis, 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 like let's analyze all this data and build models and draw conclusions and stuff like that. And he kind of turned me on to like, why don't we just like run an experiment? And see what happens. Yeah, you could spend like two weeks doing a bunch of analysis and building a whole report, or you and I could just run this experiment on a million users on Google and kind of see what happens. And then we could find out, like, kind of if we were, we were onto something in a day and like blah, 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 it'd be better and stuff like that. So that was an eye opening moment for me. That was like an exposure to a whole new way of working that was really, really great. Oh, uh, and then my first manager uh, at Google was a woman was a woman named Diane Tang. She actually has a book coming out pretty soon with Ronnie Kohavi, formerly of Microsoft, now of Airbnb, about kind of like large scale experimentation and A-B testing that I think is just going to be like the absolute definitive work. I was a reviewer for it and I read, a, I read some draft, co- draft copies and it's just exceptionally, exceptionally good on the topic. I'm really excited about it. She's a Google fellow. She's the, the most senior female individual contributor at Google, actually, for that matter. I've never met anyone who is as strong as she is, both the soft skills and the hard skills together. Like, she's just off the charts on both of them. And she is very busy but has always been very kind to me and has been a mentor to me at any of the kind of, like, career crossroads and stuff like that that I've gone through. The other person I guess i got going to want in there is, is our old friend Jeff Hammerbacher, who's one of the, the co-founders of Cloudera. And I actually, I knew him from Facebook. He tried to get me to work at Facebook back in 2007. And I, like an idiot, said no. Pros and cons not working at Facebook. So leave that alone. But he's also great and is a great friend of mine and someone I regularly turn to for advice. He's also someone. He's a math major who I think barely graduated from Harvard. He's, he's made a made something of himself as well.
0: I love when people on the show give shout outs to mentors because it's so important. Sometimes you just got to show up and start to get to know people. There's not a secret science there. To oh, you know, will you be my mentor? It's show up and do the dirty work.
1: You know, I think for a lot of managers and stuff being like the chief of staff, for a sufficiently powerful executive is like the same kind of thing. It's a terrible job, but it's also an incredible learning experience. There's a lot of incredible learning experiences that involve doing terrible jobs for very talented
0: people. The shifting gears and, and looking a little bit more forward at, you know, kind of the here and now of data science and all these things. I mean, let's set the stage here. I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, talk about your amazing tweet on what data science is. You know, I'd love to actually, you know, go a bit deeper that and and talk about kind of what is the state here and now of data science and data engineering, I had Mike Gualtieri, the analyst on the other day, and he talked about this emerging notion of model ops or model operations, kind of like DevOps. I think you hit at this a little bit. Can we paint a little picture for our audiences to like, what's the current state of play here?
1: I think everything is very hard. I want to say it's all very exciting. It's also all outside of the Kaggle competition or or like kind of a textbook or something like doing machine learning in the real world is as as you're well aware just really incredibly difficult to do, especially because doing it at scale is just involves so many different people with so many different talents working together, considering like their very different backgrounds and and like the lack of kind of common language or common ways of thinking about problems and stuff like that. I think, you know, my training as a statistician really taught me to be not pessimistic, but very like careful about what I would say that I knew in some sense. Very conservative, very much about confidence intervals, like distributions, like that kind of stuff. I think in machine learning, there's a much stronger bias towards optimism and a much stronger bias towards like look at this look how awesome we can do on this benchmark and stuff like that it's it's applying like kind of like you think about the same tools the same principles in a lot of ways but with this much more optimistic than in some ways right and then i think with software engineering and kind of like ops or DevOps kind of stuff there's that same sort of tension between optimism and pessimism between the person who like writes code and of course my code is great and it totally works on my laptop and therefore it pushes to every server. And the ops folks who are like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, everything is on fire all the time, nothing works. And so you have like those different perspectives um, all kind of coming together. You have like these poor product managers uh, you know, the, the sort of the data ML product manager, like the person who's responsible for herding all these different cats together. It's like, I don't know, it's like, it's like trying to assemble the Avengers or something. It's like really, really tough to do. It's a mess. It's really, really hard. I don't see a lot of people doing it that well, to be honest
0: with you. Well, and there ends the opportunity, right? I mean, absolutely. It's
1: very much so. I, I, I wish I could say, like, there's a shining city on a hill. Of folks doing this really well, but like even like you I know Google and Facebook aren't doing this super well either.
0: Let's spend a moment, just you know, real quick for our listeners. There's kind of a number of different roles as I think about A/B testing that go into it, both on the user side of it and then of course the back end Spend a minute explaining A/B testing.
1: So I think the nature of the of the web and the sort of the scale that some of these companies operate at means that you can solve a lot of problems and sort of short circuit a lot of the discussion uh, just by trying a couple different versions of Kind of anything you want, really, like colors on your website, layouts, recommendation algorithms, search ranking algorithms, different backends, just about anything you can think of, really, you know, using multiple trials. And if you have agreement and clarity around the metrics that matter and you have systems in place to measure how those different treatments impact those different metrics, you really can just crank. (laughs) You really can go just really like stupendously fast when it comes to like making decisions and improving systems and stuff like that. All those things I said that I just kind of like were throwaway statements like clear metrics, (laughs) systems that can tolerate the ambiguity, right? You know for sure you can actually measure what you're looking for. Those things are not free, they're not cheap, but if you have them, man, a lot of other possibilities just really like open up to you once they they become available. Yeah, Google to a fault, Facebook to a fault, Experiment on absolutely everything to ridiculous degrees in some ways
0: sometimes you can get some frankenstein things that come out of that for sure but for some perspective for our listeners i mean i think you know again if we tie back this trend around ai machine learning natives then you know as much as those functions of here's a score is the back end of that the ab testing framework in this world of experimentation is the hey how do i know it works side of the equation as opposed to the unit test or the systems test is the integration
1: test yeah exactly
0: of saying this thing works and so you know for our listeners like who want to get into software engineering especially more on the machine learning data science side like i'd really encourage you to dig in on those your reference to ronnie uh he's been somebody i follow a lot on this space as well and it's great to hear that him and diane are teaming up so josh as we kind of wind down here kind of a few things you know i mean Jobs and careers have a lot of ups and downs. You know, They're not all sunshine and rainbows, as we all know. Um, I love this question of what's the best thing about your role and what's the most challenging or what's the worst, right? Like as you think about data science, perhaps as the role or data engineering, what's the one or two best and one or two most challenging?
1: Not the bad stuff, there's plenty of bad stuff. The good stuff is hard to come by. So I think doing data stuff, data science, machine learning, and even data engineering, to a significant extent, is generally about failure most of the time, most of the time. You try a lot of different things. The vast majority of them do not work. You run a lot of pipelines, they all have problems. things are broken all the time. I mean things being broken all the time is kind of like just part of the course for for software engineering. But like in data science, you do a lot of analysis, you run a lot of experiments, you build a lot of models. Even when you're in a good position where you're actually like happen to be working on the right problem, most things don't work. It's really tough to improve sufficiently optimized baselines and, and do better than kind of naive rules. So in that sense, I think it has that same kind of payoff matrix as, say, doing like hardcore science, you know, like lab science or like looking for the Higgs boson, or even say, Grant, hypothetically speaking, being a mathematician and working really hard and banging your head against the problem for months on end. And then when you find it, when you do come across a breakthrough, when you do discover something and it's real, you basically can pay off an entire year or multiple years worth of investment with like one discovery, with one insight, with one experiment, with one model, that is incredibly rewarding. That is the best thing in the world. That is publishing in science or whatever. That's the absolute best. And you live for this. Generally, like you're gonna fail about 90% of the time, maybe 9% of the time, you're just gonna be doing something mildly useful. And then like 1% of the time, you're gonna do something that's like a really big deal. That is everything that is great and everything that is terrible about working in data.
0: Uh, I love it. It's it's kind of like being the baseball player who strikes out seven out of ten times and is one of the greatest hitters of all time.
1: I would love to strike out seven out of ten times. I mean, that would that'd be like off the charts good for a data scientist. That would be like, I mean, build a statue
0: of that person. It'd be crazy. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. That's definitely my observation as well. Is like, and and you know, in all fairness though, most things are neutral. Yeah, exactly. Most things don't
1: do anything. Sure. Most experiments don't do anything most like good insights are not really insights that kind of thing it's, yeah, absolutely
0: yeah and in some regard, you almost wish they would fail and, and not just like die a peaceful death right
1: i mean it's, it's kind of an artifact of, of sort of where you start in some ways because it's kind of like if if the business process had been like a true disaster, well then the company wouldn't still exist. They would never would have bothered to hire a data scientist to optimize it because it, they wouldn't exist to do it, right? It's just, that's the, just the nature of the job, nature of the beast.
0: Going towards our, our end here, I know you're a pretty average reader. I'm wondering if you could share a book or two that have been helpful for you in your career, either you know, kind of traditional career books or maybe something off the charts for our listener that might give them that little nugget of insight?
1: I read a lot. I read, I'm actually just popping over to my, my trusty Kindle cloud reader. I'm an avid, aggressive, really good reader, but like of code as well as books. I read a lot of code. I read code kind of for fun in a lot of ways. And being able to like, getting good at reading, learning how to read well, learning how to read code well, and learning how to like extract information from that code or that reading in a way that makes you a better, smarter person. Um, there's a book called How to Take Smart Notes. It's written by Sanka Arends, I think. I don't, I'm, I'm almost certainly like butchering her name. Anyway, it's called How to Take Smart Notes, and it is about this method called the Zettelkasten, Z-E-T-T-L-E-K-A-S-T-E-N. It's a method for reading and note-taking, and it's just like kind of brilliant is my great passion right now, writing for my own summary of what I've read and then kind of organizing this information using, because I'm a big nerd, some sort of custom Lucene stuff that I'm working on right now to organize this stuff and then kind of like surface it back to me when I write things that are related to it. You don't have to do anything like that, Ninja, but just getting good at reading in and of itself is, I think, the most useful skill to have these days. No matter what path you take, you're going to spend a lot of your time teaching yourself new stuff, so get good at doing it. And it. Starts with reading and then sort of like doubling down and trying to like maximize uh, your ability to extract and, and develop useful information for that is my, my strong advice. And that's a good stuff to do. it.
0: Nice. I tell that to my son too, but he's always like, dad, I'll just watch it on YouTube.
1: Yeah, I get that. I, I think of a lot of advice I got from my dad when I was 18. i like, damn, that
0: was it. Josh, so great to have you on the show. Final question. Where can our listeners follow you on social media, learn more from you, get a deeper peek into your career path?
1: It's really just Twitter right now, I think. It's Twitter and my, my handle is Josh underscore Wills. And then, you know, my YouTube talks are actually like pretty good, broadly speaking. You can like, if you search YouTube for me, I'd uh, activate a couple years ago about rebuilding loving Slack search. That was really fun. And then I gave a talk uh, last year at a conference called Rev, a data science conference where I went through like all of the mistakes I made during my tenure as an engineering manager, engineering director at Slack. That talk is about 18 hours long. And they, they actually been throwing me out of there by the time I was done. No, I'm kidding. It's only an hour. It's not that bad. And maybe I didn't cover all the mistakes. One of my absolute favorite talks. And I, I highly
0: recommend it. That's awesome. We'll be sure to link those up in the show notes for our listeners. Josh, thanks again so much for joining us today. It was really great to reconnect with you and have you on the show. So thanks again. Thanks man. so much, Grant. Yeah. And for our listeners, of course, thank you again for taking the time to listen. As always, if you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or Spotify or whatever you listen to. You can also visit us at developmentor.com to hear older episodes, as well as find other content on careers in tech. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. We live and die by referrals. If you have any feedback for us, we'd love to hear it podcast at developmentor.com or on Twitter at developmentor. Finally, we here at developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move that one step closer to finding your path.